Last year was the worst year for anti-trans murders on record in the United States because we, I think, are continuing to tell these horribly damaging narratives about who trans people are. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Media Matters for America, Gay USA, Humorless Queers, Propaganda, Activism from the National Center for Transgender Equality, and Talk Poverty Radio. North Carolina just passed a law banning people from using certain bathrooms that don't correspond with their biological sex. Passed easily on Wednesday with unanimous support from Republicans. So if you're a transgender woman in North Carolina, you can be required to use the men's bathroom. It's going to force people like me in the men's rooms, which is going to put us in a huge amount of danger of physical violence and sexual assault. Putting me in a women's locker room puts me at risk for violence. It makes me very vulnerable. Proponents of these laws claim they're needed to stop sexual predators from dressing up as women and sneaking into women's restrooms by pretending to be transgender. Seriously. Any man at any time could enter a woman's bathroom simply by claiming to be a woman that day. Registered sex offenders could follow women or young girls into the bathroom. We're concerned about the safety of the women. We're concerned about the safety of the uh, young, young girls. As ridiculous as it is, that talking point has dominated news coverage of the fight for transgender equality. Some people say it's a law that puts women in danger. They're very concerned that child predators will take advantage of it and possibly harm someone. That's never happened in the history of any non-discrimination law. Chase Strangio is an attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union. And as a trans guy, he's pretty tired of hearing the bathroom predator talking point. So basically, the idea is we can't protect trans people because if we do, everyone's going to pretend to be trans so that they can go into the bathroom and assault the people they really wanted to assault, but they can't because there is no legal mechanism for them to do so. That's ridiculous. That bathroom predator talking point is some straight-up right-wing bullshit. Police departments across the country say this is not a thing that happens. Criminals don't pretend to be transgender to sneak into bathrooms. It may sound good, and it certainly does excite a whole lot of folk. But the truth of the matter is that banning transgenders or gay men does not protect women and children from sexual assault. 17 states and 200 cities across the country let trans people use the bathroom that matches their gender identity. None of them have ever reported an incident where someone pretended to be transgender to sneak into a bathroom. In all your years of counseling people, have you ever counseled a child who was attacked by a man in a dress? Never. Thank you. But mainstream reporters covering these types of laws usually just repeat the bathroom predator talking point without debunking it. So viewers at home end up hearing it over and over without realizing it isn't true. People opposed to the law say it will give sexual predators a way to target children. What they are doing is participating in a falsehood that allows trans people to be associated with intrusions into privacy, with violence, and with harm to other people. And bathroom scare tactics aren't new. Conservatives have used horror stories about bathroom safety to justify discrimination for years. They said it about desegregation, they said it about the Equal Rights Amendment, and they said it about gay people. Public restrooms can often be a hangout for the homosexual. It's a lie invented by anti-LGBT activists to spook people into voting against LGBT equality. 
And so far, it's working. Cities and states across the country are voting to regulate transgender people's access to bathrooms. Most opposed to the bill say they were worried about men being allowed to use women's public restrooms. And that story is incredibly damaging and really undermines any effort to protect trans people and to protect that whole LGBT community. Republican politicians are using imaginary horror stories about bathroom predators to pass creepy, invasive laws policing the gender of anyone who goes to the bathroom. And that's the story media outlets should be telling when covering bathroom bills like North Carolina's. video that crossed our path this week that uh, I thought was interesting because we have heard certainly from trans people pleading their case. We've seen things like that Media Matters analysis. But I think there are still a lot of people who are confused about these issues and yes. ambivalent and don't know what to think or where to turn or whatever. And uh, we came across this video that is doctors, social workers, professionals talking about trans kids. Children. And, young children. Yes. And endorsing them. And it's a, it's a powerful video uh, when coming from the mouths of professionals, not that I think they know everything, but uh, it just struck me as a slightly different take on this. So we thought you might be interested in this. I'm a pediatrician and we take care of kids, all kids, and we want them to be healthy and safe. That's what you need to do with these same kids. When they go to the bathroom, they want to go to the bathroom, that's it. This is a public health issue. When people can't use a bathroom, Many young people tell me about withholding food, withholding fluids, just so they don't have to be faced with the challenge of determining where they're going to use a bathroom. Nowadays, people are fearful and feel like that they are challenging their own way of thought or their own standards or rules or life. That is not at all what the youth are trying to do. They just want to be them and they want to be happy. First, the research shows us that there are many, many children who identify as trans who experience very high levels of anxiety, depression, and ultimately suicide if they're not connected with affirming resources. When kids are affirmed, they learn better, they're able to have better relationships with their peers, they feel more support from their family system and more connected with the people around them. When I have a parent who comes back after really getting to know who their child is and they say, I finally saw a smile in my child that I never thought would exist, that keeps me going for the year. Lawmakers introducing bills that um, make it difficult for trans kids to survive in school or in society. Um, it's horrific when that happens. We need to support all of our citizens and make the world safe for these kids. My patients come from all over. Many of them are in the middle of nowhere. Transgender children and transgender people are everywhere. We see our patients come from all walks of life, from urban areas, from suburban areas, from rural areas, 
all over. It's not uncommon for us to get calls from families across the country just seeking information or education about where they can go. I would request that anybody who's making a law that says that you can't use a bathroom go through a day trying to experience that first before putting that law on somebody else's head. They want to be able to go to school and they want to be able to do basic things like go to the bathroom without being afraid. This isn't really about trans kids at all. This is about demystifying that fear. I wish people knew that trans kids are truly amazing, wonderful kids. They're just like everyone else and they're also really special. happy to welcome back to the show chase strangio chase is a staff attorney with the aclu's lgbt and hiv project he represents chelsea manning in her civil lawsuit against the department of defense for failure to provide her medical treatment and in his free time he bails people out of jail all right well chase thank you so much for coming back on the program we just had you on a few weeks ago and i feel like so much has happened since the last time you were here so first off thanks for being here today i know you're busy thank you so much for having me yeah a lot is is happening on this front so the last time you were on we were talking about the anti-trans bill hb2 that had passed in north carolina um at the time of this recording there's been a ton that's happened just this week so starting on monday may 9th we had north carolina suing the government um but there was something that happened even before that so can maybe we start there about what happened even before north carolina sued the government yeah so it's been well, you know, with HB2 passing in the special session in North Carolina's General Assembly in March, it's been a lot of attention on that law uh, and a lot of pressure on the federal government to really take some sort of action, given that the North Carolina law was passed in clear violation of the federal government's position on the meaning of Title IX and Title VII and the Violence Against Women Act. Um, so there had been a lot of pressure on the federal, on the Obama administration to, to take action with respect to the federal funding that was, uh, that is given to, to North Carolina under these programs. And last week, which was May 4th, the Department of Justice finally sent letters to the state of North Carolina indicating that they were in violation of Title VII, which is an employment law that dis- uh, prohibits discrimination based on sex and employment, Title IX, which is a federal law that dis- prohibits discrimination based on sex and education, and then the Violence Against Women Act. And the government gave North Carolina until Monday, May 9th, to uh, indicate whether or not they planned to come into compliance with the federal law, either through repealing HB2 or ceasing to enforce it. So that brought us to the deadline of Monday, May 9th, in which there was some speculation that, in fact, 
this would provide cover to Governor McCrory to uh, stop enforcing HB2. Right, and like back down. Yeah, yeah. I think we thought yeah. he would, we thought perhaps he would, he would back down and say, all right, well, I don't like this, but the federal, I don't want to risk the federal funding to my state. And so I'm just going to give in to the Obama administration. So rather than do that and back down, Governor McCrory and his, um, colleagues in North Carolina doubled down in the most astonishing way. And Monday morning, rather than even wait to see what type of enforcement action the Department of Justice was planning, the governor filed his own lawsuit. Uh, He sued the United States in federal court in um, North Carolina, seeking a declaration that HB2 did not violate federal law and that the Obama administration's interpretation of federal law was, in fact, incorrect. So he filed that lawsuit Monday morning. Uh, By Monday afternoon, two more lawsuits had been filed. Uh, One was filed uh, by uh, two lawmakers in the North Carolina General Assembly who filed their own lawsuit against the United States, separate from Governor McCrory's lawsuit, alleging the same thing. Can I ask you why they did that? I mean, is it just, is it help them politically, they think, and they maybe are worried about their reelection and they think, I know what I'll do, I'll do some horrible hate-mongering thing where I support my hate-mongering governor and that'll help me? Or what's your interpretation of why they did that? Yeah, so for the so for the lawmakers who did it, um, uh, Representative Moore and um, Senator Berger, they I think did it in part because they are even more true believers than um, than Governor McCrory. I think they actually were even more hateful and don't trust him perhaps to fully litigate this in the way that they would want to litigate it. So I yeah. actually think they wanted to take it even further. And their complaint is actually even more hostile and terrifying than Governor McCrory's, which reads much more like a press release. Like he just wanted to say, you know, fuck you to the Obama administration and and his press release sort of does that. Whereas the other um, complaint filed by Moore and Berger is, is, you know, really shows how much they believe in expelling transgender people from public life. So so those two lawsuits are filed in, in federal court in North Carolina, and then also on Monday afternoon, May 9th, the United States government announced that they had filed a lawsuit against Governor McCrory and other officials uh, in North Carolina for violations of Title IX, Title VII, and the Violence Against Women Act. Um, And at the time of the filing, uh, the Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced through a press conference along with the head of the Civil Rights Division of DOJ, Vanita Gupta, that they would be you know, filing this lawsuit to enforce the federal civil rights laws. But in addition to just making the announcement about enforcement, they really, you know, gave a very impassioned speech about the dignity of of transgender people and how harmful it has been to have to endure this type of rhetoric and how the federal government and the Obama administration stands behind I mean, I think I saw a lot of reporting around this about how monumental it was. I'm curious what your reaction was watching it. Yeah, you know, I I have to say I didn't expect very much um, watching it. I knew, you know, that they were going to make this announcement and sort of thought it would be a, a dry, you know, sort of typical DOJ announcement about a law enforcement action with respect to enforcing civil rights. I have to say that I was quite moved by it. Um, I was really moved by both Vanita and Loretta Lynch. Um, in terms of how genuinely they seem to care about the issue, um, and I haven't felt that necessarily, at least from Lynch in the past. 
so, so on the one hand, it was really powerful to to, start, to to have that counterpoint to what we've seen from state and local lawmakers with respect to trans people, which has been quite the opposite. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard when it's the federal government, it's the Department of Justice, and you know that at the same time that they're saying these things and, and probably meaning them, they're also deporting, uh, you know, massive amounts of, of people, you know, through other parts of the administration. Um, and, you know, for me, representing, you know, Chelsea Manning, who's currently in the custody of the Department of Defense, being represented by the same Department of Justice, keeping her in prison and also preventing her from getting the medical care that she needs, it's really hard to look at this as, you know, a holistic moment of, of positive things for the community when there's so many other things happening. Right. I mean, I think the the statements were very moving. The administration wants you to know that we see you speaking directly to trans Americans, trans people in America. Um, And yet, right, it seems like we see you in the context of this very big political fight, but we don't see you, Chelsea Manning, when you want to grow your hair. We don't see you, you know, undocumented trans folk who are being deported or incarcerated in ICE detention facilities. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's like we see you when you fit within this political frame that that works for us, but we we won't see you if you don't, and we won't see you if you disrupt like, our other political agendas. And and so I think, of course, it matters that they see trans people at all, but I think that we can't uncritically sort of take that to mean that um, we have the federal government behind us in the fights that matter for trans people because we don't for all of those fights. And so um, right. while while they're there and in, in, in some respects uh, at certain times, and that is powerful and important, they certainly are not always. Transphobic bathroom bills have been debated in legislatures across the country this spring. And even though most of them have not become law, the rhetoric around the debates have spread really hostile and toxic ideas about transgender people. The transmisogynistic slogan, no men in women's bathrooms, has become front page news across the country. Luckily, we have writer Sam Rydell to spell out and debunk these talking points one by one. Sam is a bitch contributor and trans-feminine Brooklynite. In this essay, she goes through right-wing myths that are being used to back these bills and explains, one by one, why they're wrong. To borrow a snippet of Star Wars, it is a dark time for the Republic. Despite the tireless efforts of transgender activists across the United States, bathroom bills legislation limiting access to restrooms, locker rooms, etc., only to those whose assigned birth gender matches the label on the door, they barrel forward. At last count, 14 such bills were pending in nine states, and more seem to be sponsored every day. In 
emboldened by North Carolina's House Bill 2 and Mississippi's HB 1523. With them come slates of blanket anti-LGBTQIA bills seeking to ride the bathroom bill's coattails. If cisgender people thought trans-trenders were bad, this particular trend is far, far worse. Still, proponents of these bills claim their work is necessary and that without their efforts to codify gender discrimination, innocent citizens will be placed at risk of assault and worse. It's unfortunate that the discussion around trans rights has pivoted so swiftly to center the views of political and religious zealots on the far right, but their discourse has become so widespread that it must be addressed. Here, then, are the most popular objections to letting transgender Americans use the bathrooms of their choice, and why they're transparently nonsense. Number one. Allowing trans women in women's facilities will allow men to indulge peeping Tom fantasies. First off, let's acknowledge that this argument necessitates the erasure of transgender men in order to hold any water. Not only will anti-trans bathroom bills fail to prevent men from sneaking into the women's room, it will force thousands of trans men to do so under the guise of quote-unquote protecting women. And make no mistake, this isn't about what trans men tend to look like. You've probably seen the misguided memes featuring burly-bearded trans men posing in bathroom mirrors while uncomfortable cis women look on, but this isn't about presentation. If men, in general, don't belong in women's bathrooms, why do right-wing activists seem so hell-bent on forcing men in there just because they might have vaginas? That said, the argument is completely false in other ways, too. Let's assume that even half of 1% of people who are attracted to women are compelled to loiter in the bathroom and attempt to peep on them. That would account for thousands of harassment cases a year. So why are there not no lesbians allowed signs on bathroom doors? If it's a problem that's exclusive to men, why is this problem not endemic in the gay male community? Simple. This sort of behavior is already socially inexcusable and legally actionable. There are already laws on the books to discourage and punish this behavior regardless of gender. Two. Allowing trans women in women's facilities will allow men to sexually abuse women and girls. This is the more frequent corollary to the first point. The insinuation that trans women, by their very presence, open the door for cis men to prey upon cis women. That's insulting on a ridiculous number of levels, but let's break this down carefully. Content warning for graphic discussion of sexual assault. Transgender identities are not a new development. Though trans people have been more visible in the last decade than in many years previous, trans women and trans men alike have been using facilities consistent with their gender identities and presentations for ages. If cis men were waiting for their chance to pretend to be trans, bad news, they already had that ability. So why would they start now? And if one truly wanted to commit sexual assault in a public place, why would you be concerned about a new bathroom access statute? Bathroom bill advocates pressed that, all assertions to the contrary, abusive men have been caught pretending to be trans before. The case of Christopher Hambrook is often cited, but erroneously. 
Hambrook is a Canadian man who pled guilty to sexual assault and criminal harassment in 2013 after pretending to be a trans woman and gaining access to a women's shelter. But he also served time for child rape in 2002 and was determined to have multiple mental illnesses and was rated as a high reoffense risk during psychiatric assessments, during which he admitted he was not transgender. Hembrooks is one of the only cases of its kind, and yet it barely lends any credence to bathroom bill arguments. If anything, it proves that vigilance in mental health and transitional housing facilities can never be too high, and that solutions are desperately needed to address violent sufferers of mental illness. All that being said, there are still more reasons why bathroom bills are not appropriate to address the problem of sexual assault in public facilities. Even though there are already sexual assault laws on the books in every state, rapes regularly take place in women's bathrooms regardless of equal rights laws. Preventing those before they happen would require massive nationwide security upgrades, destroying the privacy bathroom bill advocates claim to protect. 3. Trans people are just deluded anyway, and we shouldn't allow men to invade women's spaces. It's troubling to even acknowledge that this argument exists. But when people like South Carolina Sheriff Chuck Wright say things like, quote, If you're a guy and you go into the bathroom with my wife, I'm going to whip your tail. Unquote. Something has to be said, because this rhetoric actively leads to the assault and murder of trans people, which we'll discuss in a second. Gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia are mental diagnoses which have been recognized by the psychiatric community for decades. What is less known, however, is that it's not a disorder, a misconception perpetuated by the outdated term gender identity disorder, which was phased out years ago. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Volume 5, lists dysphoria in a category separate from sexual disorders, and while trans people with dysphoria and some do not experience it, are at risk for anxiety, depression, and self-harm, studies have shown that social and familial affirmation can be mitigating factors. Most importantly, however, neuroscience is beginning to show that transgender brains operate differently than cisgender ones, pointing towards a somewhat biological basis for trans identities. Gender identity isn't just a feeling, it's fact. Four, allowing assigned male-at-birth students into girls' facilities will encourage bullying and sexual assault. Again, this is an assertion that posits that trans girls are really boys, and that boys are irresistibly drawn to bullying girls, setting aside the fact that schools must take steps to prevent bullying in bathrooms full stop. This argument is still woefully out of touch with the reality. Like adult trans people, trans children are far less safe when coerced into using facilities which match their assigned birth gender. 12% of respondents to the 2011 National Transgender Discrimination Survey reported that they had been sexually assaulted in K-12 school. Forcing trans children to use facilities designed for a gender not their own puts them at greater risk for this sort of abuse, allowing them access to correct facilities will lessen that risk and help prevent some of the worst kinds of bullying. 5. Trans people should just use unisex and single-stall restrooms. Tell that to the trans woman who was assaulted in Stonewall's unisex single-stall bathroom in March. It's tempting just to drop the mic there, but look, 
unisex bathrooms are relatively rare. Telling trans people that they need to find one whenever they need to use a bathroom in public is incredibly difficult. Just like the security issue before, making unisex bathrooms the norm would require a massive national infrastructure upgrade, which is wholly unrealistic, especially when you consider that we generally have enough bathrooms already. Can't we just start using them as we need them? So the next time you hear someone spout off about men in dresses who are endangering millions of women because of their feelings, go ahead and set them straight with plenty of these facts and a skeptical eyebrow just the way your auntie bitch taught you. Sam Riddle. You can follow her on Twitter at Samus McQueen. So you mentioned the rhetoric and the damage it will continue to do. If you cut to the quick of it, what is really behind this rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, I think that opponents of trans bill of trans people and like trans participation in public life like to tell these sort of two central lies. The first lie is that somehow, you know, if you let trans people use restrooms that match their gender, it will open the door to predators coming into bathrooms to assault women and girls. It's always women and girls, never a concern about predators assaulting boys, for example. But but that's the story, is that you will open the door to these assaults of women and girls in the bathrooms by, you know, allowing, quote unquote, men in women's bathrooms. So that lie is, um, you know, problematic for two reasons. The first is that transgender women are not men. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, it, it sort of starts with the with the problematic assertion that, that trans by letting trans women into girls and into the women's bathroom, you're opening the door to men. And that's, of course, not true. Um, and, and so that, you know, is the first false premise. And the second is that there just is no evidence ever of non-discrimination protections opening the door to a greater number of assaults by people pretending to be trans. Um, if people are going to assault people, they probably are going to do it anyways, and it's already illegal. They don't they don't pretend to be trans to get access to the bathroom to to sort of make these assaults happen that the other side likes to to talk about. And the other lie and 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 sort of really hurtful thing that is said is that trans people are themselves predators inherently. Um, and and this of course is is also entirely not true. All of the data suggests that the only people um, ever getting assaulted in bathrooms when trans people are in the bathroom are the trans people themselves. And so we know that when it comes to trans bathroom use, it's trans people who are vulnerable, not trans people who are assaulted. Well, and it seems that trans folk are, are uniquely vulnerable to many kinds of crime, not necessarily just assaults in bathrooms, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think trans people are are so often victims of, of violence, in part because we have, as a society, sort of propagated the falsehood that transgender people are unlovable so that people don't care about trans people, that they're inherently deviant or fraudulent or put, or, or lying uh, about who they are. And so this type of rhetoric really 
authorizes and emboldens people to act in a violent and harassing manner towards trans people, which is why, you know, last year was was the worst year for anti-trans murders on record uh, in the United States because we, I think, are continuing to tell these horribly damaging narratives about who trans people are. When you have the full force of some state and local governments essentially co-signing discriminating against trans people, and when you put the imprimatur of the state on things like that, you're certainly going to embolden people who would do harm to trans people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is right. You have the you have the state government and state lawmakers and school board officials and lieutenant governors essentially themselves threatening violence to transgender people right. um, from their official positions of power, which of course authorizes and emboldens private citizens to do exactly that. Um, and so that is something that we see, you know, so often. And then the other pro- like really harmful thing that that is being that gets you know, told over and over um, about trans people using bathrooms is that, you know, being in the same space as a trans person violates the privacy of a non-trans person. And I think this is the the one that even people who are, you know, think of themselves as very well-intentioned actually sort of succumb to this idea that, well, what if my young daughter saw a penis in the girl's room? And this is the idea that, you know, the trans person's body in and of itself Impose, you know, imposes on the privacy needs and rights of the non-trans person in in a public bathroom or locker room, and mm-hmm. and I think this one it, it is harder to grapple with. But of course, the reality is that we all have you know privacy needs and you know concerns about our bodies and sharing intimate space with others. When it comes to restrooms, you know, I think we can all agree that there is not nudity in restrooms. So that is just an absurd concept. People don't walk around naked in the restroom. And then when it comes to locker rooms, you know, there there are many ways that people can be protected and private if they so choose, including by going into stalls or or behind uh, curtains to actually get undressed um, or to not see others undressed. But the reality is there's a right way and a wrong way to protect people's privacy interests. And unequivocally, the wrong way is to expel transgender people from public space by saying that their bodies are somehow so shameful that they you know, cannot be seen or be in proximity to others. A cry and shame, a cry and shame, what we became. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Should we listen to uh, Loretta Lynch? I I think it would be a relief from some of the stuff that we are talking about. This was pretty amazing. 
uh, Loretta Lynch gave this impassioned, long, long speech about this. We're going to show you seven or, or so minutes. Well, we're going to show you the whole seven minute speech. It was followed by uh, some more statements by the head of the Civil Rights Division, who is filing the lawsuit against North Carolina. And then there was a Q&A by uh, Loretta Lynch, which went on with more. And if you get on our email list, we will send you the link to the whole speech. Yes. Uh, just go to our website, www.gayusa.com. Our, oh, what are we? Org. org. Oh, we're org. God bless it. <laughs> we're dot org. Gay USA. There it is. It's on the Gay screen. USA Gay USA TV dot org. Uh, but meanwhile, Loretta Lynch on Monday, after uh, North Carolina filed its suit against the Justice Department, came out to say, well, clearly the North Carolina is not going to reason with us, is not going to stop implementation of this law. So we are filing a lawsuit. And she was enormously eloquent, especially towards the uh, end of this seven minutes, about the Justice Department's commitment to supporting uh, trans people. So let's look. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. I'm joined by Vanita Gupta, head of the Civil Rights Division here at the Department of Justice. We are here to announce a significant law enforcement action regarding North Carolina's Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, also known as House Bill 2. Now, the North Carolina General Assembly passed House Bill 2 in special session on March 23rd of this year. The bill sought to strike down an anti-discrimination provision in a recently passed Charlotte, North Carolina ordinance, as well as to require transgender people in public agencies to use the bathrooms consistent with their sex as noted at birth, rather than the bathrooms that fit their gender identity. The bill was signed into law that same day. And in so doing, the legislature and the governor placed North Carolina in direct opposition to federal laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex and gender identity. More to the point, they created state-sponsored discrimination against transgender individuals who simply seek to engage in the most private of functions in a place of safety and security, a right taken for granted by most of us. Last week, our Civil Rights Division notified state officials in North Carolina that House Bill 2 violates federal civil rights laws. We asked that they certify by the end of the day today that they would not comply with or implement House Bill 2's restriction on restroom access. An extension was requested by North Carolina and was under active consideration. But instead of replying to our offer or providing a certification, this morning, the state of North Carolina and its governor chose to respond by suing the Department of Justice. As a result of their decisions, we are now moving forward. Today, we are filing a federal civil rights lawsuit against the state of North Carolina, Governor Pat McCrory, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, and the University of North Carolina. We are seeking a court order declaring HB2's restroom restriction impermissibly discriminatory, as well as a statewide bar on its enforcement. Now, while the lawsuit currently seeks declaratory relief, I want to note that we retain the option of curtailing federal funding to the North Carolina Department of Public Safety and the University of North Carolina as this case proceeds. But this action is about a great deal more than bathrooms. 
This is about the dignity and the respect that we accord our fellow citizens and the laws that we as a people and as a country have enacted to protect them, indeed to protect all of us. And it's about the founding ideals that have led this country, haltingly but inexorably, in the direction of fairness, inclusion, and equality for all Americans. This is not the first time that we have seen discriminatory responses to historic moments of progress for our nation. We saw it in the Jim Crow laws that followed the Emancipation Proclamation. We saw it in the fierce and widespread resistance to Brown v. Board of Education. And we saw it in the proliferation of state bans on same-sex unions that were intended to stifle any hope that gay and lesbian Americans might one day be afforded the right to marry. And that right, of course, is now recognized as a guarantee embedded in our Constitution. And in the wake of that historic triumph, we have seen bill after bill and state after state taking aim at the LGBT community. Now, some of these responses reflect a recognizably human fear of the unknown and a discomfort with the uncertainty of change. But this is not a time to act out of fear. This is a time to summon our national virtues of inclusivity, of diversity, of compassion and open-mindedness. And what we must not do, what we must never do, is turn on our neighbors, our family members, our fellow Americans for something that they cannot control and deny what makes them human. And this is why none of us can stand by when a state enters the business of legislating identity and insists that a person pretend to be something or someone that they are not, or invents a problem that does not exist as a pretext for discrimination and harassment. And let me speak now directly to the people of the great state, the beautiful state, my home state of North Carolina. You have been told that this law protects vulnerable populations from harm, but that is just not the case. Instead, what this law does is inflict further indignity on a population that has already suffered far more than its fair share. This law provides no benefit to society, and all it does is harm innocent Americans. And instead of turning away from our neighbors, our friends, and our colleagues, let us instead learn from our history and avoid repeating the mistakes of our past. And let us reflect on the obvious but often neglected lesson that state-sanctioned discrimination never looks good and never works in hindsight. It was not so very long ago that states, including North Carolina, had other signs above restrooms, water fountains, and on public accommodations, keeping people out based on a distinction without a difference. We've moved beyond those dark days, but not without a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and an ongoing fight to keep moving forward. Let us write a different story this time. Let us not act out of fear and misunderstanding but out of the values of inclusion and diversity and regard for all that make our country great. Now let me also speak directly to the transgender community itself. Some of you have lived freely for decades, and others of you are still wondering how you can possibly live the lives that you were born to, live, to lead. But no matter how isolated, no matter how afraid, and no matter how alone you may feel today, know this that the Department of Justice and indeed the entire Obama administration want you to know that we see you, we stand with you, and we will do everything we can to protect you going forward. 
And please know that history is on your side. This country was founded on the promise of equal rights for all. And we have always managed to move closer to that ideal, little by little, day by day. And it may not be easy, but we will get there together. Let me also thank my colleagues in the Civil Rights Division, who have devoted many hours to this case so far, and who will devote many more to seeing it through. And at this time, I will turn the podium over to Vanita Gupta, whose determined leadership on this and so many other issues has been essential to the Justice Department's work. Vanita? Very, very moving. It gives me goosebumps to listen to it. And at the same time, uh, I, I have running through my mind, what is Attorney General Chris Christie going to stand up there and say? <laughs> Under President Trump, yes. because that's a possibility, folks. It we have to is. speak it so that we st stop it. it if, if I may make a partisan statement. It is so moving to listen to Attorney General Lynch yes. speak like and that. And I loved the way she put it in the context of the whole fight for civil and human rights. Of course. And, uh, you know, it's also, this is also indicative. This is, you know, it's a broken record in this country. The Civil War has never ended in this country never. and a lot of this comes from the south we, we will go through all the sins of the north and new york and the racism and and the homophobia and the transphobia and everything else but these states seem wedded to these kinds of things i think largely due to fundamentalist religion i think it's uh, you know the south is certainly a core but it it couldn't be so prevalent if it weren't permeating well, the entire country New poll, Americans broadly opposed laws that would require transgender people to use facilities uh, and, that corresponded and, with their gender at birth uh, and uh, yet, rather than their gender identity. Wait a minute, the CNN poll, three quarters and three quarters favor laws guaranteeing equal protection for transgender individuals. And yet we keep electing conservative legislators, uh, conservative governors, conservative uh, members of Congress. And I think that's largely because, I think that's largely because most of us don't vote. And we, we think it's not worth voting. And if you want to leave it to the people who think Donald Trump would make a great president to do all the voting, uh, go ahead and you will reap what you sow. But uh, that, you know, that, that's what, you know, people have to vote all the time in every election, in every off year, uh, you know, no matter uh, how you're feeling that day. I just, vote. I just find myself. This, uh, this also reminded me of President Kennedy's 1963 speech on civil rights when he finally broke through. And, you know, he was not a big civil rights guy. He was from Massachusetts. It wasn't a big issue there. And uh, he didn't even know a lot. He said he didn't even know a lot of black people at the time. Uh, but uh, he gave a tremendously moving speech, and he moved the country in the right direction in June of activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, 
flush discrimination. In case anyone has been distracted by election year horse race politics, it's actually Pride Month, and we want to take this time to remind you that the anti-transgender law in North Carolina is still on the books. As you just heard, Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced that the U.S. Justice Department is countersuing the state of North Carolina in a supportive and powerful speech, drawing obvious and direct parallels to the civil rights movement. But North Carolina isn't the only state that has passed or is considering passing these kinds of laws, and you can help fight this reaction to fear and ignorance across the country with resources and the Flush Discrimination Campaign from the National Center for Transgender Equality, or NCTE. The organization's North Carolina Action Center and National Action Center give you all the tools you need to fight anti-trans bills in your state and beyond, as well as resources to protect yourself or your loved ones. Here's the latest status on anti-trans legislation across the country. Kansas's bill passed in the state Senate, Michigan's is in committee, North Carolina's and Mississippi's have been signed into law, New York's has been referred to governmental operations, Oklahoma's is up for a vote in the state Senate soon, and in Washington, an anti-trans ballot initiative has been filed. Visit www.transequality.org backslash action hyphen center to access links to resources under each state to help you tell those in power that these bills will not be tolerated. If you want to get engaged on social media, take part in the NCTE's flush discrimination campaign. Sign the pledge at transequality.org backslash flush. Take a photo or video of yourself holding their downloadable flush discrimination sign and use the hashtag flush discrimination when posting to social media platforms. Show everyone that you won't stand for mandatory government discrimination in North Carolina or anywhere else. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofaleft.com. So if making sure the civil rights of transgender people are protected is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about how to hashtag flush discrimination via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change With me in studio to discuss a an incredibly historic, really, I think is probably the right word, week for uh, equality and specifically for transgender individuals is Sarah McBride. Uh, she is a, a total rock star here at the Center for American Progress um, and and leads our work on these issues. Sarah, thank you so much for joining Talk Poverty Radio. Thanks for having me on the best trans week ever. <laughs> best trans week ever. So why, why has this been the best trans week ever? Walk us through some of the big announcements and news. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think it's safe to say that transgender Americans have seen more progress in the last five days than potentially at any point in our community and movement's history. Starting on Monday, uh, a lawsuit was filed by the U.S. Department of Justice against the state of North Carolina over their discriminatory and mean-spirited bill HB2, which, among other things, requires or bans transgender people from accessing restrooms consistent with their gender identity. And in announcing that lawsuit, the attorney general 
delivered probably the most profound and moving uh, and frankly forceful uh, speech in favor of transgender rights that we've ever seen from a senior administration official. She went so far as to actually compare HB2 to Jim Crow laws. How did she make that comparison? Do you think that it's apt? She she, she did. And and her her way of, of making the comparison was talking about it was throughout our history, we have too often sided with exclusion and discrimination. Uh, too, too often in our history, we have had distinctions without a difference. And, and that has included signs among restrooms that separated uh, black Americans from white Americans. Now, obviously, no two movements and no two communities are the same. And as a white transgender person, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious in, in making that comparison myself. But I think her point was that saying that transgender women can't use women's restrooms and saying transgender men can't use men's restrooms. And the rationale behind that is a distinction without a difference in the same way that requiring people uh, of different races to use different bathrooms. And for that reason, some people in the trans community and more broadly in, in uh, the, the progressive community are actually calling her speech the trans movement's I have a dream moment. Is that how it feels right now? Well, I, I certainly think uh, it's going to take a trans person to deliver our movement's I have a dream speech, but... There's no question that that speech was um, not just pivotal from a, a sort of broader historical perspective, but also incredibly helpful and empowering for the community itself, particularly after weeks of both rhetorical and, and legislative attack that attacks that we've seen in states like North Carolina, in states like South Dakota or Tennessee that tried to pass similar bills. Um, but uh, it was truly a turning point, and it was only the start of the week. Uh, yesterday, news broke that the U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Justice would be issuing clear and comprehensive guidance requiring uh, schools to uh, allow transgender students access to facilities and programs consistent with their gender identity and requiring schools to treat those students consistent with their gender identity. And then today, the Department of Health and Human Services released a final rule that interpreted the sex protections in the Affordable Care Act to ban discrimination based on gender identity and gender stereotypes, which provide incredible protections, particularly for the transgender community who no longer can face categorical exclusions for medical care around their transition in healthcare programs funded, funded by the federal government. So help us unpack that a little bit. We're speaking, it's Friday of this week, so folks who are listening over the weekend and in, in future days to come know that this, this all has played out throughout the course of this week. But unpack for us a little bit what you just said and what the importance is of rejecting that kind of categorical exclusion. One of the most frequent forms of discrimination that transgender people face are these blanket exclusions that exist in insurance plans that say, despite the fact that the medical community has deemed transition-related care, that's, that's surgeries or hormone therapy or, or, or any kind of treatment uh, related to transitioning genders, despite the fact that the medical community has deemed those treatments medically necessary— Insurance plans have have historically, at least in the last several decades, said we will not cover any care related to that, uh, despite the fact that most of those procedures, almost all of those procedures, are actually provided for other people for other reasons. And so it's, it's a pretty clear-cut instance of we're going to provide this service for everyone but transgender people, despite the fact that transgender people, based on 
science based on medicine based on the needs of these transgender people need these services just as much as other people. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention for our listeners' benefit that this is a set of issues that is incredibly personal for you. This is not just an advocacy issue that you lead on here at the Center for American Progress, um, but actually some of our listeners may be familiar with you, the celebrity that you are. Uh, you you took a selfie that went viral in a North Carolina bathroom. It ended up on MSNBC and basically every other news outlet that was worth its salt. Uh, I may be biased, but that is that is my view. <laughs> Um, what was the significance of the selfie you took in North Carolina, and what is the significance of the issues we're talking about to, to you? Well, I, I, as you mentioned, I took a selfie while using a restroom in North Carolina in a government building that I was technically barred from being in. And I took the selfie and, and posted it on Instagram and Facebook, and it, and it blew up far more than I ever could have expected. I, I took it not because I wanted to demonstrate Oh, look, look, look at me and don't I belong in this space? I took it to try to bring some humanity to this issue, move past the rhetoric, move past the abstract arguments and the unfounded fears and say, we are real people and we need access to bathrooms. If we can't access bathrooms consistent with who we are, it becomes much harder to go to work. It becomes much harder to go to school. It becomes much harder to participate in public life. Banning people from restrooms that, that make sense for them effectively removes people from from every aspect of society. And so I, I took the picture and, and posted a message along with it in an attempt to say this isn't about what we look like. This is about who we are. This isn't about our appearance. It's about our humanity. Um, but this entire issue for me and, and, and where I come to this work for me is, is so much more than my own identity as a transgender person and not to get super deep, but I... I come to this work not just as someone who is transgender, but also as someone who's loved someone who's transgender. Um, I met my future husband, Andy, fighting for trans equality. We ended up working together here at the Center for American Progress, and, and we fell in love. Shortly after we started dating, he was diagnosed with cancer. Andy was a transgender man who had come out in college. He had the courage to say to this world that says who we are is wrong, that he wouldn't spend one more day hiding. And... After he received a clean bill of health, his cancer came back, and it was terminal. Uh, Andy decided. Andy and I decided to get married in August of 2014, and just four days after that, he uh, passed away. There are a lot of things that I took from that relationship with Andy and that experience with Andy, but for me, more than anything else, and this goes to creating safe schools, this goes to removing exclusions that allow transgender people the treatment they need to live true to themselves— the lesson that I took was that every day matters when it comes to building a world where every person can live their life to the fullest. And the last several days, we've seen the Obama administration stand up and, and come out on the right side. They've always been on the right side, but forcefully come out on the right side of history on this and to bring equality to millions of Americans that, that have been f excluded for generations. Thank you for sharing what I know is a personal and difficult um, to share story, um, but I, I think it, it does provide a lot of, um, as you said, humanity to what we're talking about. I think 
from where I sit reading the news coverage, almost all of it focuses on bathrooms, right? The, these bills, which are not exclusive to North Carolina, which really have been spreading like wildfire across the country, and that's worth um, reminding ourselves about. It isn't just North Carolina. The, the coverage often focuses on bathrooms and, and often the declarations of why we need these, quote, protections for, for people, right? It focuses on protecting people in bathrooms. Why do you think that that's the thing that um, advocates of this kind of discrimination lead with? Bathrooms have been a central component of anti-equality forces throughout the last 60 years. Every single movement for equality from civil rights to the push for the Equal Rights Amendment to advocacy for the Americans with Disabilities Act, every single effort in part has centered around bathrooms. I think for many people, transgender people and non-transgender people alike, bathrooms are understandably vulnerable spaces. For whatever reasons, bathrooms are, are spaces where we feel um, we feel exposed and, and potentially so vulnerable that we feel unsafe. But what ha- opponents have, have done, particularly in this fight around access to restrooms consistent with folks' gender identity, is they have said that if you protect transgender people from discrimination in bathrooms, if you continue to allow transgender people to access the restrooms they've been accessing just now without fear of discrimination or harassment, that there will be predators who will take advantage of those laws to harm women and, and children. This is, this is an argument that they made uh, against gay Americans 30, 40 years ago. It was untrue then and it's untrue now. And we know that for a number of reasons. We know that because we've passed transgender protections, including in restrooms, in 18 st- – we have them in 18 states and we've passed them in over 200 cities. And we have never seen an instance where one of these laws has allowed for or facilitated violence or public safety incidences in public restrooms. Law enforcement in those states and communities have come out and said that that these fears are unfounded. And 250 of the nation's leading sexual assault and domestic violence organizations have have come out and said protecting transgender people in bathrooms from protecting them from discrimination doesn't hurt anyone and banning them from restrooms doesn't help anyone and if anything it only perpetuates and increases increases violence against an already vulnerable community and that was part of what Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, focused on in her speech. She she really called out North Carolina Governor McCrory um, and the way that he's been messaging around that particular bill, HB2. She said, you've been told that this law protects vulnerable populations from harm, but that is just not the case. Instead, what this law does is inflict further indignity on a population that has already suffered far more than its fair share. It provides no benefit to society. All it does is to harm innocent Americans. And it's 100% true. The facts bear it out. The, the, the reality bears it out. And the transgender community that's under attack, we're making that clear. 70% of transgender people in one study have been harassed, assaulted, or, or discriminated against in a public restroom. 70%. 70%. That's an astonishing number. The people who we know are vulnerable in bathrooms are marginalized communities, including the transgender community. Predators are not going to put on a dress to access a restroom in order to commit a crime simply because we protect transgender people from from discrimination. The idea that non-discrimination laws are relevant to a person committing a crime, a crime that was illegal the day before these protections were passed and a crime that's illegal the day after these protections were passed, the idea that that comes into play is 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 
completely unfounded and, frankly, uh, a ridiculous idea. We just heard clips featuring Media Matters lay out the truth about the myth of the bathroom predator. Gay USA played a video of professionals explaining the importance of supporting trans kids. Humorless Queers interviewed ACLU lawyer Chase Strangio about the state and federal governments suing each other, as well as the damaging effects of the lies told about anti-trans bathroom laws. Gay USA played and discussed the groundbreaking speech delivered on behalf of the federal government by Attorneys General Loretta Lynch. Our activism for today is in support of the Flush Discrimination Campaign from the National Center for Transgender Equality. And finally, we just heard Talk Poverty Radio interview Sarah McBride from the Center for American Progress on the history of bathroom discrimination. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is James in Michigan. I'm calling because... um I'm hearing the birth of a narrative, and it is really upsetting to me. Um, I'm from Michigan, and um, on your podcast and another one, I hear this uh, this narrative that, you know, oh, Rick Snyder poisoned the people of Flint because he was trying to save some money. That's not true. We know that now. He was uh, trying to privatize the water in Flint. Um, it's really important that the truth be spoken again and again because even though Michigan is fairly conservative locally, there's no way he would have gotten the support. When you say, oh, he's trying to save a little bit of money, it sounds like a mistake that we could all have made. So I just feel it's imperative that people start saying the truth and saying, Ray Snyder poisoned the people of Flint because he was trying to privatize the water, and privatization never works. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Love the show. Hi, Jay. This is Matt from San Diego. I had a comment on the Bernie or Bus movement. I'm a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders, and I'll be voting for him during the California primary. But I strongly oppose the Bernie or Bus movement for the reasons expressed by you and other progressive commentators. You have given plenty of excellent reasons why Bernie or Bus is not a good strategy. But I feel like there's one point of discussion that nobody seems to mention, and that is Bernie Sanders does not support the Bernie or Bus movement. And this isn't a secret. He's been very clear about this since the beginning of the campaign. He does not want to be the spoiler who hands over the White House to the Republicans. He has explicitly stated that he will support Hillary Clinton if she is the nominee. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating for people to blindly make political decisions based on the views of a single person. If you feel strongly about the Bernie or Bust movement, that's your decision. Just recognize the fact that the person from which your movement gets its name will be supporting Hillary Clinton if she is a Democratic nominee. I really want to thank you, Jay, for helping to promote independent media on the left. It was actually the show that introduced me to progressive politics. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in, responding to your comments at the end of the Racism podcast on Friday regarding oppression and, and so forth. And you started to touch, but, but really didn't. I mean, you kind of just circled around humor um, when you said comedians and rapists and so forth. And it got me thinking, and I've recently been called out on a chat that I'm participating in on, on something that I said that, you know, at the time I thought was kind of funny, but, but in looking at it was really inappropriate. 
And if we take a look at humor in general, there's always a butt end of the joke. You can think about when I was growing up, it was blonde jokes and Polish jokes. And if you look at the media today and television specifically, whether it's American Funniest Videos where someone's almost always getting hurt or uh, some of the comedy shows, there's always making fun of something, which draws into question allowing you to laugh and allowing you to participate in that in your social aspects. What is that saying to continue those stereotypes and to continue to downgrade that? If you allow that humor to continue, aren't you oppressing the equality of those that are at the butt end of those jokes? And if you look at jokes, unless you're, you, you know, the majority of jokes, I think, are always having somebody that's going to be offended to. Anyway, that's my two cents. Uh, thanks and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, of course, we are at the very tail end of voting for the podcast awards. If you hear this in time before end voting on June 12th, please head over to podcastawards.com and register your vote for best of the left in the news and politics category thanks so much to everyone who has voted and uh you know please help us finish strong and then we'll see what happens now just real quick in response to alan from connecticut who we just heard asking about jokes and how they are either offensive or actually oppressive i actually have a clip it's been in my back pocket for a long while now it just hasn't made it on the show until now uh, but it's perfect for this. So instead of me responding, let's just hear this clip from the series Decoded from MTV on YouTube. Racist jokes. They can happen anywhere. School, work, Thanksgiving dinner. So if someone tells a racist joke, how do you handle it? So you're at a party and someone tells a racist joke. And that guy in the ghetto is a cop. <laughs> You know it's true. Do you A, give a sarcastic laugh? <laughs> That's a good one. B, get mad and throw a chair. That was hilarious. Or C, Google, how do you respond to a racist joke? I'm gonna guess you went with C. Jokes come in all shapes, sizes, and in this case, colors. When it comes to racist humor, we're not just talking about being offended, we're talking about jokes being oppressive. So what's the difference? Offensive jokes hurt feelings or make people uncomfortable. <gasps> Jokes that are oppressive don't just make people uncomfortable, they actually reinforce negative ideas about marginalized groups of people. A study out of Western Carolina University analyzed how people's attitudes changed about particular groups based on the types of jokes they were presented with. What they found is that when people feel discrimination against a certain group is justified, disparaging remarks about that group don't really change your thinking on them. You're pretty much set in stone. But for groups where prejudiced attitudes are shifting and being challenged, like women, LGBT folks, and people of color, negative jokes about those groups can release inhibitions, making some people believe the discrimination is justified. This also goes for ironic racism, like when Sarah Silverman did blackface. It's still blackface. No, but I'm like saying something racist to comment on how bad racism is. It's meta. TLDR, words mean things, and they can influence people in negative ways, even if it's just a joke. So what do you do if you hear a racist joke? Here's what's worked for me. First, I ask myself, can I talk about this now? Basically, you gotta pick your battles. Not every situation is suited for don't be a racist 101. No, grandma, this ends now.
but if I can talk about it in that moment, I usually try one of these. The sarcastic approach. You know what's really funny? Ironic racism, still racist. Go completely silent. Play dumb. Huh, I just, I don't get it. I mean, this country was stolen from the Native Americans, built by slave labor and founded by immigrants, so technically, wouldn't that make you illegal? Reply with a judgmental gif, or jif if you're one of those. Or you can just unfriend them. I mean, you don't have to put up with that online or off. It's not your job to educate everyone. And when all else fails, just be honest and direct. Hey, that's not funny. I'm, I'm really not cool with jokes about people who already have it bad enough, so, Please don't say stuff like that around me. So does that mean everything is off limits? Not at all. I mean, technically, you can make jokes about whatever you want, but there will always be consequences. So using it's just a joke doesn't make it exempt from criticism, nor does complaining about political correctness. So there's an Asian guy, a black guy, and a Mexican, and oh sh it's the PC police. Calling others the PC police basically says, I should be allowed to say whatever I want, but you aren't allowed to say whatever you want about whatever I just said. Um. Free speech doesn't work that way, so. Good jokes should stand the test of time. But as our society progresses, our perception of what's funny evolves. So jokes that were funny 20 years ago might not fly today. Political correctness isn't keeping anyone from making jokes. It's saying, we want a better world, so jokes have to be better too. So have you ever had to shut down a racist joke? What strategy worked or didn't work? Tell me about it in the comments and I will see you next week. All right, I don't think I need to add anything to that, so we'll just leave it there. I'm happy to hear comments from you on this or anything else you want to chime in on. So as I say, please keep those votes coming in for the podcast awards at podcastawards.com and keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And the best thing you can do on Facebook is to mark our page as see first. You don't just like it, you like it and then mark it to be seen first. That's how you know you'll actually see the things we post there, and then you can share all of the great content we put out. And then for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And Stories and forget who it is we're